Welcome to the Freedom and Captivity podcast, a podcast about abolitionist organizing and visioning in Maine. I'm Catherine Vestman. I'm the host of the podcast. And today's episode, uh, we're focusing on confronting surveillance. We're going to be talking today with Brendan McQuaid, who is an, a professor of criminology at the University of Southern Maine and the author of a fantastic book called Pacifying the Homeland, Intelligence Fusion and Mass Supervision. Brendan is an expert on the creation of fusion centers, which are new models for the ways in which uh, state surveillance can be utilized uh, against, um, against citizens and residents. And uh, his book is, is an absolutely pathbreaking book uh, with its focus on two different fusion centers in New York and New Jersey. So we're gonna get into talking about Brendan's book about fusion centers nationwide. And we're also gonna talk about uh, the Fusion Center in Maine. So Brendan's book tracks the creation of fusion centers in the United States uh, from their beginning in about 2003, 2004, when there were 18 fusion centers across the country uh, to 2019, when there were 79 fusion centers across the country, including one here in Maine. Uh, Brendan's argument is that fusion centers were created after 9-11 with the stated goal of gathering intelligence in order to combat terrorism. But what they actually do is quite different, he argues. So Brendan, I'm gonna ask you to lead us off by just telling us what are fusion centers? What do they consist of? Who works there? What happens there? What are they meant to do? So fusion centers are interagency intelligence hubs. Um, you know, they're supposed to connect the dots, so to speak, to prevent uh, an intelligence failure like the one that um, you know, officially was behind the 9-11 attacks. So at fusion centers, you will find, um, you know, people from many agencies and, and all levels of government. So fusion centers are usually administered by either municipal police, if, they're, if they have jurisdiction over a metro area, or state police, if they have jurisdiction over an entire state, but they're staffed by people from uh, state, local, and federal, you know, law enforcement and intelligence agencies. Sometimes they will even hire, you know, private uh, security contractors to work, um, you know, work at the fusion center and conduct, um, you know, specialized uh, services. Um, the term fusion center is, you know, most strongly associated with the Department of Homeland Security, but, um, you know, these interagency intelligence hubs are, you know, an older, an older phenomena. So they first were created in the, you know, late, in, in the early 70s. Um, <clears throat> the El Paso Intelligence Center uh, under the Drug Enforcement Administration is arguably the uh, first fusion center. So, um, you know, what what I think we need to keep in mind is that it's not just these now 80 intelligence hubs under DHS, what, what we're really talking about is this broader practice of, you know, uh, intelligence or data fusion. So I'm sure we have, we all have some awareness about all the data we create just by living our lives, the, you know, browser history, when we, you know, use go online, uh, location data created by our cell phones, uh, credit card transactions, you know, in addition to the administrative records that are created, you know, when we, you know, do anything and interact with, you know, any piece of government or, you know, uh, many private sector institutions. So uh, what data or intelligence fusion is, is, you know, amassing all of this data and trying to refine the signal out of the noise. Uh, this, always, this isn't always, you know, about, um, individuals. Sometimes it's about, you know, um, aggregating and getting perspective on, on, on uh, you know, broader, broader issues. So, you know, just to make this concrete, you know, one of the first things I saw when I went into a fusion center was a, you know, private intelligence analyst from a geospatial intelligence firm who was using a, a logarithm used to predict the 
location of roadside bombs in Iraq and Afghanistan. He was using that to predict uh, future shots fired in you know cities in New Jersey. So data fusion takes takes many forms, uh, and you know fusion centers are DHS fusion centers, and then you know these larger uh, collection of other interagency intelligence hubs run by various pieces of the government are where you know data fusion is put to work for the purposes of you know we might call it law enforcement, order maintenance, uh, put put to work for the purposes of of you know government. So, Brendan, what these fusion centers are doing is pulling in data from a wide variety of sources, some of which is open access public sources, some of which might be private sources, and they're, and they're bringing different ways of analyzing this data uh, into, into focus um, in, a, in a coordinated way in order to look for particular kinds of things uh, that are identified as desirable kinds of things to look for by the people who run the fusion centers. Is that kind of more or less a rough gloss? Yeah, exactly. And I think the, the important thing that they take, you know, a few different sources of data. One is, you know, existing government records. Two is uh, open source um, uh, information, which may include, you know, social media, credit card purchases, uh, things like that. And then three, they develop their own databases. So using new surveillance technologies. So, you know, some fusion centers have uh, CCTV cameras feeding into them. So in the Chicago Metro Fusion Center, they have, you know, 20,000 CCTV cameras feeding into the fusion center. They use facial recognition technology and they can track the movement of an individual in real time, you know, across the city from camera to camera. Uh, other fusion centers have automated license plate readers feeding data into them. Others use, um, you know, social media scrapers to, you know, automate the collection of social media data. Each fusion center has its own story. So there's this uh, phrase in the fusion center literature and among, you know, the fusion center world that uh, if you've seen one fusion center, you've seen one fusion center. So each one has, you know, there's different agencies there, there's different private sector, uh, you know, there may be different private sector contractors there. They have agreements with different pieces of government to access their data. They bought different um, software packages to analyze that data. So, you know, there's uh, some, you know, we can say in general what fusion centers are but to really know what the what a particular fusion center is doing, you need to dig in and conduct conduct research. That's uh, you know not not easy to do. Yeah, this is one of the things I found so fascinating about your book. So you focused in on two distinct and different fusion centers, one in New York and one in New Jersey, and you argue very persuasively that these fusion centers respond to the particular desires and interests of those who work there, those who direct the work that happens there, that they're, that they're idiosyncratic, they're unique to their each specific location, um, with, which is, I think, a, kind, of, kind of a revelation that the people who run the place and work there kind of get to chart what they're gonna focus on and, and, and who they're gonna track across the city, whose data they're gonna, they're gonna scroll through. Um, you make a really persuasive argument that the fusion centers that you studied uh, were, not actually very oriented towards trying to, you know, combat terrorism per se, but they exist for a different kind of purpose. And I'm wondering if you can describe to our listeners what you found for each of these fusion centers. What what did, what do they seem to exist to be doing? Well, you know, first the you know after 9/11, the government poured you know billions of dollars into counterterrorism, but terrorism is an exceedingly remote phenomenon. So you had you gave police um, you know, funding to hire people, to set up intelligence centers, to buy software, to, you know, amass data. And then, you know, and then they had to do something with it. So they tended to do, um, you know, what police do, which is, um, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I talk about it in terms of order maintenance and how exactly that work plays out um, relates to, you know, the particular institutional environment that 
you know, this money is being poured into. So I compared New York and New Jersey. Uh, if you look at the official DHS recognized fusion centers, the New Jersey Regional Operation Intelligence Center and the New York State Intelligence Center, if you look at the official, New, the official fusion centers, New Jersey looks like a model and New York looks like a laggard. So, you know, New Jersey's fusion center is focused on, uh, you know, New Jersey has a lot of uh, cities that have, you know, high crime rates, high rates of violent crime, you know, uh, gun crimes, homicide is a very serious issue in places like Camden, Patterson, Trenton, Newark. So the New Jersey Fusion Center is, you know, tracking crime guns. That's one of the main things they do. They're tracking shots fired. They're doing, you know, the type of, you know, very aggressive uh, investigations into the drug trade. The Fusion Center becomes the launching, you know, the staging ground for, you know, big uh, multi-jurisdictional uh, counter drug operations, you know, where they'll gather intelligence for months and then, you know, knock on doors or, you know, get, get warrants, knock down doors, arrest dozens, sometimes even hundreds of people. Uh, the New York Fusion Center, in contrast, is, you know, a dumping ground for underperforming personnel in the state police. One uh, interviewee told me they called it the island of misfit toys. Um, so, and a lot of what they do is what people call, uh, people in the intelligence community and in, you know, law enforcement call intelligence spam or police spam. So they'll write up, you know, a report on counterterrorism, you know, and send it out to, you know, police chiefs and, you know, the middle management in police, in police departments across the state. And, you know, what it is is a, a, a news summary of, you know, political violence or, you know, terrorism um, across the world, you know? So um, they'll send out, you know, a report about, you know, car bombings in Iraq or the latest developments in Eastern Ukraine, right? And law enforcement predictably don't find much value in this because these concerns are very remote to their actual work. But if you look, you know, deeper into New York State, what you'll see is that, you know, New York State's official DHS, DHS recognized fusion center, you know, is what it is because uh, New York had already built up a massive intelligence apparatus before DHS even existed. So, you know, New York City is the largest city in America, has the biggest police department in the world. It helped uh, pioneer, um, you know, what's called intelligence-led policing, which is the kind of, um, you know, doctrine behind intelligence fusion and behind fusion centers. Uh, as a result of, you know, developments in New York City, the uh, state government in New York started to set up these county crime analysis centers. So there's something like 16 county crime analysis centers in different counties in upstate New York, pretty much in, in elsewhere in New York State. Pretty much every, you know, uh, county with a city of, you know, 50 or 60,000 or more has its own intelligence center that does, you know, data fusion or intelligence fusion for, you know, law enforcement purposes. So they're doing the same stuff that I saw in New Jersey, but it's not happening through the uh, DHS, um, you know, the, through the official DHS recognized center. So when we, you know, take a step back and look at the national context, you know, we have the, the now 80 fusion centers recognized by DHS. We have uh, I think 50 some intelligence and uh, IC, uh, ISCs, intelligence support centers under the high intensity drug trafficking program, which was created in the late 80s. We have um, the FBI has field intelligence groups in joint terrorism task forces, 100, uh, over 100 joint terrorism task forces. The DOJ runs a series, I believe, of six regional intelligence sharing centers. Um, 
you know, uh, and then many municipalities have, you know, real-time crime centers, have, you know, many big cities have their little metro fusion centers that aren't recognized by DHS. So in 2010, the Government Accountability Office put out a report that counted up 268 federally funded, you know, intelligence operations in the United States. Uh, those leave out those county crime analysis centers I met I mentioned in New York State because you know they're not federally funded they're funded by the state. So I say all this is because you know my book gives a very detailed view of the institutionalization of intelligence fusion in two states, but you know what it should also tell us is that there are many 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 more stories to be told and many more details to be filled out. Each state has its own history and its own unique, you know, uh, institutional arrangements. You know, the the United States is lousy with police intelligence centers, and you know, there's there's many 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 of them that uh, have unique profiles. Some, you know, some are like the New York State Intelligence Center. They're they're kind of Keystone Cops, Reno 911 frauds. Others are like the New Jersey Fusion Center where they're doing, you know, really, they're supercharging the war on drugs and the war on crime, you know, with the most advanced um, surveillance and intelligence systems that, that exist. So one of, the, one of the arguments that um, really fascinated me about your book was when you, when you um, got to the broader picture about what impact this is having across the country, and one of the arguments that you that you make is that as the country increasingly moves towards forms of decarceration, recognizing the damages uh, of, of mass incarceration or hyperincarceration, moving towards forms of, of mass of not mass decarceration, but efforts towards decarceration, that the work that these fusion centers are doing across the country amounts to what you call mass supervision. Um, and you're arguing that fusion centers are key to this uh, sort of emerging new landscape of mass supervision, which you describe, and I'm quoting you here, as a project to pacify criminalized surplus populations. Uh, this gets to the heart of what you think is so dangerous about the proliferation of these fusion centers and the sort of work that they're doing. And I'm wondering if you can describe that for us. What is problematic about this proliferation of fusion centers and the sort of, of mass supervision that you argue they are engaged in? You know, uh, I think this is, you know, this, this is the kind of the core thesis of the book, right? The, um, you know, the U.S. prison population has declined by, you know, uh, almost 10% in the last decade. But what we haven't seen along with that is a real you know, is, is, is a shift back to what call, people called, you know, penal welfareism, a more, you know, rehabilitative and therapeutic model of, you know, penology, let alone anything, anything beyond that, right? So we're reducing prison populations, but we're not really changing the coercive uh, approach to, you know, what, uh, what we might call criminal justice, but what I think is better understood is just, you know, interpersonal and social harms, right? We haven't changed the approach. So what's going on, right? When I went to fusion centers, I didn't find people, um, you know, working on counterterrorism because uh, terrorism doesn't, <laughs> is an exceedingly remote phenomenon. I found people uh, monitoring, you know, the desperate crimes of, you know, of, of poverty. I found people monitoring, uh, you know, people struggling to get by in the poorest cities in New York and New Jersey. Um, so, you know, the quote that you mentioned uses the term, you know, pacification. And the book, you know, the title of the book is called Pacifying the Homeland. The term pacification is kind of at the theoretical core of the book. And it's, you know, part of a, uh, you know, Marxist theorization of, you know, the, the, the politics of, of capitalist societies. So, you know, we all have, you know, our, our, our 
our world is premised on endless and infinite growth, right? The endless and infinite, infinite accumulation of private wealth, right? So this is an order of relentless change that creates all sorts of insecurities, right? All that is solid melts to air, the famous quote goes, right? So you have all these insecurities, this demands a politics of security. So what, you know, the criminal legal system is doing is not, you know, it's not about uh, restoring harms and making people whole. It's about papering over those insecurities for the purposes of systems maintenance. So when we think about decarceration, right, I wish it was happening because people were recognizing the social and human costs of mass incarceration. But, you know, my sense of of the of the issue is that it's happening because of the fiscal costs it's you know after the great recession and even before that in some states after the dot-com crash it was too expensive to lock people away right so what could we do and what's a cheaper alternative a cheaper alternative is to um you know to, to manage them through aggressive policing and uh, intensive surveillance. Um, so that's what, you know, that's what, uh, that's the work that fusion centers do. You know, I, my book opens and closes with the example of Camden, New Jersey, which is kind of the most extreme example of this. This is a city that uh, has not recovered from, you know, the economic changes, the, the deindustrialization and the rise of the so-called information economy. It is a, a city that has been locked into long-term economic decline. It's a city where the center of the, the center of economic activity is the drug trade. Uh, a quarter of a billion dollars of heroin reportedly moves through Camden each year. What comes with that, you know, clandestine and criminalized commerce is a lot of violence and suffering. And how is it maintained? It, how is it contained and managed? It used to be by you know, locking up a lot of people, and now it's by transforming the entire city into an open air, air prison. The city is you know, uh, you know, blanketed in, in surveillance cameras, in shot, spot, shot spotter, um, gunshot detectors, there are, you know, police, you know, initiating contacts, filling out field contact cards, gathering information about people. There is a, you know, metro intelligence center that does virtual patrols and, uh, you know, intelligence analysts move from camera to camera, just, you know, watching people all the time. Uh, so Camden is an extreme example, but, you know, it sets, you know, certain issues uh, in relief, it makes it clear to see. And I think, you know, in most, in, 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 in most large cities and basically all large cities, there's neighborhoods that look a lot like Camden that are hyper-policed and are hyper-policed by, um, you know, um, you know, uh, high-tech surveillance. So, you know, what the danger of this is, you know, that it kind of works to a degree. Right, it it allows uh, it's a cheaper way to manage the uh, you know the social problems created by you know a, a created in a society organized around you know not just the infinite and endless expansion of private wealth but the infinite and endless polarization of of wealth and misery. Um, so, you know, Camden's emerged as a model for police reform that, you know, uh, people want to uh, use to, you know, in the Obama years, it was let's, 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 uh, this is the post uh, Ferguson model to um, reform policing since uh, the George Floyd rebellion and, you know, the, um, you know, the move by some cities to, you know, abolish or, or, or at least uh, disband and reform their police, many are looking to Camden as an example. And it's, you know, a very dangerous example because, you know, it's not a, 
fundamental change. It doesn't address the underlying, you know, problems that are causing, you know, uh, people to harm each other, right? It doesn't get to the root issues of crime. It's just a more, you know, cost-effective way of, you know, managing the violence. And it's one that comes with the, you know, that, you know, the California cool digital sublime. It's smart. It's, you know, data-led. It's, um, you know, it's it, it appeals to, to the, um, you know, to the, it appeals to, to the, to liberal technocrats, because it looks like it's, um, it looks like it's well-informed and cutting edge and unbiased because it's data-driven. Uh, so there's a lot more, there's a lot more intricacies that we could say, but, you know, I think the, the, the real danger of this is that we're, you know, we're reducing prison populations without addressing the underlying problems at root of at, at the root of mass incarceration and at the root of the United States, you know, uh, outsized rates of you know violent crime and interpersonal harms. And you know, if we're serious about building a good society, we need to understand that you know the the, the solution isn't replacing prisons with um, surveillance cameras and replacing corrections officers with uh, you know, data-driven police patrols. One of the, you know, another quote from your book that I think summarizes beautifully what you've just explained is, is when you say security is the political work of managing poverty and pacifying class struggle. And so what your book argues and what I just understand you to be arguing is that pouring money into things like, as you describe in your book, saturation patrols and warrant sweeps and, you know, these, these increasingly um, high-tech ways of monitoring, surveilling, watching, interfering with, harassing uh, folks on the street without any sort of investment in the kinds of things that people actually need, like, you know, great education, great housing, great healthcare, um, a, a beautiful environment, that the investments instead are going towards what you would identify as pacification forms of surveillance and monitoring and invasiveness into everyday life. Um, let, let's bring this to Maine. Maine is, Maine is different from Camden, uh, New Jersey. And yet you have been sort of at the center of a focus on the Maine Fus Fusion Center, the one fusion center that operates in Maine, um, quite involved in the recent effort through the Maine State Legislature to close down the Fusion Center, which ultimately failed in the Senate. Um, but can you describe to us what, what is happening in Maine with the Fusion Center? What does the Maine Fusion Center do? Again, who works there? What is their target? Why do they exist? Who pays for it? Where does the money go? So the, the Maine Fusion Center is the Maine Information and Analysis Center for the MIAC. Uh, now, as far as fusion centers go, this one is um, relatively small. It... Um, has a, I just wanna get the exact numbers. Um, it has a budget of about a uh, million dollars. Um, most of that comes from, you know, the, the state's general fund and highway fund, about $100,000 comes from the federal government. Uh, it has a, um, staff, I believe, of, um, here we go, uh, 10 part-time positions, uh, or 10, 10 part-time positions, six full-time positions, and uh, four management positions. It's run by the um, Maine State Police, but uh, some of the other people working out there out of the Fusion Center are a intelligence analyst from the Public Health Department, an intelligence analyst from the um, high-intensity drug trafficking area, which is one of the, um, it's, a, it's a program run out of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, which actually sits under the executive office of the president under the White House. Uh, you may have heard the drug czar. The drug czar is the head of uh, Office of National Drug Control Policy and HIDA, or the high-intensity drug trafficking areas, is one of their main programs. And, uh, you know, through this, they have a analyst at the MIAC 
they also have uh, someone from the National Guard that works on the uh, drug interdiction program. Um, you know, what the MIAC's main focus is, is the, you know, the, um, the uh, brokering of criminal information. So, you know, intelligence is supposed to be analysis. You know, in theory, what intelligence is, is you're giving, you know, executives, you're giving decision makers, you know, the, um, not just the, not raw information, but the you know concise analysis they need to understand complex situations and make decisions. That's not what the MIAC does. What the MIAC does is you know share requests to identify suspects, you know wanted persons, locate persons of interest, uh, a missing person, provide information about you know a possible crime or suspicious circumstances. Um, so. You know, la and Juneteenth, Juneteenth, uh, July nineteenth, twenty twenty, uh, a WikiLeaks-like transparency organization called Distributed Denial of Secrets published uh, two hundred and sixty-nine gigabytes of uh, hacked police documents, including you know five gigabytes of documents from the MIAC. And you know, I've spent the last year going over those documents and analyzing, you know, the data in all sorts of ways. And, you know, what it shows is, you know, um, you know, nearly 80% of the document of the over, you know, uh, you know, 13, nearly 1400 documents uh, produced by the MIAC, 80% of them concern the sharing of criminal information. And what this often is, is, you know, um, homeless person with mental illness, you know, um, you know, a mentally ill person living in the woods. Um, you know, it's a, it's a story of, you know, not of, of people who are more, more harmful to themselves than others. It's a story of people struggling to live in the margins. It's the people that cycle in and out of you know, jails, prisons, uh, other institutions. It's the people that, you know, um, yeah, are the, are the most vulnerable and victimized in our, in our society. And the MIAC is, you know, keeping, uh, keeping tabs on them. One of the main, um, you know, there was about, um, you know, uh, 280 some MIAC products that, you know, rose to the level of intelligence that, you know, had some, um, you know, had some, uh, you know, assessment and analysis. And, you know, two-thirds of those were focused on, on uh, drugs, on the opioid uh, epidemic. Um, you know, we did, uh, you know, I was working with, with someone from Distributed Denial of Secrets and, uh, you know, a, a, a PhD student at Harvard, and we did a network analysis of the MIAC email logs. So email logs are the metadata about, um, you know, about the products that the MIAC sends out. So they tell us who's downloaded the documents, you know, when they downloaded them, you know, um, and what we found doing this network analysis of the documents is that, you know, 14 of the 15, um, you know, most downloaded documents in the second half of 2007, which was when we had the most complete email logs for, 14 of the 15 were directly related to property crime. You know, the not the one not directly related to property crime document with an attempt to identify about a missing white female teenager with mental health issues, you know, in multiple personalities, the document says. Uh, what was interesting is, you know, there's 85 other um, missing persons reports um, included in these email logs. And they were not as widely distributed, you know, they were not as widely distributed as this one, right? So it's possible that law enforcement were genuinely, genuinely interested, you know, in helping this person with, you know, or, you know, perhaps they found the uniqueness of 
this person's situation, uh, you know, to be, you know, entertaining. Um, we also found, um, um, you know, uh, in, you mentioned the legislative fight that we had, right? Uh, so the, um, you know, the, the leadership of the Mayak, when they were saying how essential they are, they talked about their role in, you know, preventing suicides, in disrupting uh, a mass shooting, you know, in locating, you know, missing uh, minors who, you know, were at risk of being sexually victimized. Um, that was their PR strategy. What the analysis of the email logs showed was uh, that the majority of reports did not concern missing persons, but information um, about, uh, you know, violent crime, property crime, drug offenders, and especially the sale of opioids. So, and then very importantly, domestic violence suspects are completely ignored. So the most central wanted poster for domestic assault circulated roughly as frequently as a wanted poster for someone who had stolen a rare coin collection. So this silence on domestic violence is a particularly damning reflection of the MIAC's priorities. You know, Maine has one of the lowest crime rates in the United States. In recent years, the state records about 20 homicides annually and over half of them are connected to domestic violence situations. So what this means is that the MIAC is, you know, ignoring what's arguably the most pressing public safety issue in the state, domestic violence, in favor of chasing property crimes. Um, so I say all this because, you know, what fusion centers are and what the MIAC is, is, you know, this is the nerve center of, you know, mass criminalization. The United States is, you know, we're the wealthiest society ever to exist in human his history, but, you know, we're a society defined by grotesque inequalities. People are suffering, right? That's why, that's why Maine, that's why the opioid epidemic is such an issue here, right? And people are trying to escape from the misery of their condition, right? And what is the MIAC doing? It is trying to contain the, the violence there's some of the violence that flows from the misery of that condition. But, you know, they're very selective in it, right? Like the silence on domestic violence to me is, is very telling, right? They're, they, they're, going, they're very concerned with property crime. They work with, you know, corporate, you know, retail loss professionals is the term they use to go after shoplifters. But they, you know, they don't give a damn about the women and children being kind of brutalized by, you know, by their, you know, their partners, their relatives, etc. Um, so, uh, you know, what does the MIAC do? It's the, you know, it's the nerve center of mass criminalization, and, um, you know, it's mostly concerned with property crime, violent crime, and, you know, particularly opioids. So, Brendan, one, one could argue that the MIAC is reflecting the priorities of the United States, which is protecting private property, um, ensuring uh, sort of uh, comfort and security for uh, the wealthier wealthier members of this community, while trying to shuttle off um, and uh, and 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 control and manage the the more vulnerable, uh, the poorer, and um, and those uh, pushed outside of capitalist norms of success. That, that's exactly what you're saying. So the Mayak is is may may make these claims about whose interests it's serving. When, when you actually look at the records, the focus on property to the exclusion of other sorts of injuries um, reveals its, its priorities of the kinds of harms that it considers to be uh, those most worthy of its attention. And what you're arguing, Brendan, is that this is an entirely misplaced and, and, uh, and, and, and unjust uh, prioritization of the sorts of harms that we should be caring about. So would your response be to reprioritize the harms or I know that your response is get rid of get rid of the fusion center. And I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners what why you want to get rid of the fusion center. What would that accomplish? I want to get rid of the fusion center for multiple reasons. I mean, one, it's it's harming people right now, right? So one of the one of the documents that MIAC produces is the opioid arrest bulletin. This is just a list of people arrested for uh, 
for for you know possession of opioids. Um, there's no you know it's a rogues gallery. It's pictures, it's names, it's addresses, it's offenses. There's no intelligence information, right? Uh, and what does this do? This you know this is one of the most downloaded documents that the MIAC produces. What's the communicated message? Like these, the, here are the dope fiends, go hunt for them. These are the bad guys to go get. There's no, you know, it's not like, you know, this is the intelligence on the people, you know, smuggling fentanyl into, into communities. It's not, you know, it's not anything like that. It's just a rogues gallery. So the Mayak is harming people. It's immediately harming people now. Um, you know, but then it's, you know, it's a reflection of, you know, our priorities and how we choose to, you know, govern, how we choose to manage, you know, harms. So, you know, there are, you know, there's real people suffering in Maine, you know, uh, you know, I support, you know, decriminalization and even legalization and regulation of, 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 of illegal drugs, of all illegal drugs, but I'm not going to deny that, you know, addiction and drug abuse is real and it hurts people and hurts families and hurts communities, right? I'm not going to, you know, uh, you know, Maine has a low crime rate, but, you know, domestic, you know, 20 homicides a year and 10 of them were connected to domestic violence is, you know, that's a, that's a real harm that we should take seriously. All this property crime that the MIAC is tracking, you know, is, you know, that's, Largely, it's, you know, desperate people doing desperate things to get by. You know, these are, are, are all harms that we deal with on the back end, you know, after someone's been hurt, after someone's been disorderly in public, we come in and try to clean up the mess, mostly by, you know, locking them up, by penalizing them, by criminalizing them. I think we can do better by addressing these problems on the front end, you know, by trying to proactively, you know, meet people's uh, needs. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting bills being proposed, you know, right now in the main legislature, um, you know, to, you know, not just to roll back criminalization, but to, you know, you know, meet people's, uh, meet unmet needs. So, you know, we can criminalize drugs or we can do, you know, what Representative Charlotte Warren has proposed in one of her bills, you know, cut the budget of the main drug enforcement administration by half and half and use that money to fund community based, uh, you know, drug treatment. So things like that, you know, uh, are important. There's also with the MIAC, the MIAC is also an opportunity to confront, you know, mass surveillance. So, you know, when I talked at the beginning of this discussion, I, you know, I used the terms intelligence fusion and data fusion interchangeably. You know, law enforcement are not the only people mining our digital traces that, you know, that we leave to, you know, know us and control us and monitor us. This is happening, you know, even more, this is how, you know, this is how those, our silicon Valley overlords have accumulated their their massive hordes of wealth, right? By by monetizing our personal information. So, you know, I, I think the Mayak fight is important because hopefully, to some extent, it brings awareness to this issue. But then also, you know, closing down fusion centers closes, you know, closes down, you know, ends markets for surveillance technologies, right? I don't want to live in a world where you know, state and private powers uh, control us, steer us from a distance through our data, right? And that's the world we live in. And, you know, we should understand that the fight over government surveillance isn't just about abstract notions of privacy. It's about, you know, go governance. Like, are we going to have meaningful self and community determination? Or are our fates going to be subtly steered by, you know, the the people that amass the data and write the algorithms? And decide what constitutes criminal behavior and the categories of people that um, are to be treated as criminals. Uh, in addition, I would, I would. Right. Yeah, definitely. 
So, so Brendan, the last question then is, I, I think what you've been moving us towards um, in the comments that you just offered, uh, which is the question of, of abolition. Um, so the, the abolishment of a fusion center, the abolishment of criminalizing people for things like drug use, the abolishment of treating uh, private property and the protection of private property as more important than investing in people who are suffering, people who are vulnerable, people who are poor, uh, people who are denied opportunities to live a, a, a flourishing, sustainable life. Um, that, that clearly accords with, um, with the emerging vision uh, in Maine about what sort of an abolitionist future could look like in Maine. And we're seeing this, I think, with the sorts of bills that you've mentioned that are being introduced in the legislature, some of which have been successful, such as the recent vote to close down Long Creek and end youth incarceration in Maine once and for all, um, others of which have not yet been successful, such as the bill to close the Fusion Center. So Brendan, for you, as somebody who has spent your entire career focused on these sorts of questions of surveillance and the technocratic management and governance of surplus populations, as you say, as you say um, the mass supervision of, of, of poverty um, and the investment in a capitalist-led understanding of where our priorities are. What would an abolitionist society look like to you? What would be its predominant values? What would be its predominant values? Well, to me, you know, I'm, I'm happy you use the word value because the thing I'm thinking about now is, you know, what, um, to me, what what the real crux of abolition is is the you know is the abolition of the value form, right? And I'm not not going to go into the deep arcana of Marx here, but you know what I will say is you know the term um, the term that's at the center of my book, this idea of pacification, comes from you know this larger you know scholarly project that I'm very proud to be part of, you know, called the anti-security perspective. You know, and one of the things that anti-security scholars have done is to go back to the original and expanded meaning of the term police. So we think of police, we think of law enforcement, we think of cops. You know, and if you pick up a book about police history, it will start with, you know, the Metropolitan Police in the NYPD in the 19th century. But the word police was first used in the 15th century during you know the during the you know the the transition from feudalism to capitalism and what police meant then was what we understand what we'd understand today as policy right is is how, what is the government going to do how is the government going to govern how is it going to set priorities right and that policy had a strategic orientation right the the abiding concern of what eventually became called police science was you know how to uh, how can we make wealthy prosperous uh, you know communities right and that sounds all well and good but what the accumulation of wealth meant at the time was you know the destruction of the commons and you know the the transformation of the reorganization of human human relations around you know private property. Uh, the cash nexus, individualism, right? So to me, the, you know, what does police abolition mean? You know, it might look like in the, in the, in the immediate term, it might look like closing down the main drug enforcement association and uh, or administration and, um, you know, creating community-based drug treatment. But the, the, the bigger project behind that is, you know, moving from something that's administering a system of needs and managing harms to something that's creating, you know, a, you know, in this case, a commons of health, right? So what is the opposite of police? The opposite of police is the commons, right? And I think, I think, I think this is a really important framing. On the one hand, there's a certain social democratic common sense that fits into this, right? The best way to reduce prison populations is to raise the minimum wage. The best way to reduce prison population, you know, and we can go further, right? Guaranteed right to housing, education, you know, the things that you need to live a decent human life. But the commons is 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 greater than you know universal public goods, 
right? The commons is a different way of living. It's a way of living, you know, outside of possessive individualism where, you know, what you own, you know, who you are is what you can earn and what you own and you owe society nothing. You know, a, a common conception of humanity is, is a conception of community and, and interdependence. Um, so I think we need those things to, to live, you know, we need those things to live well, right? We need those things to be happy, to be well-adjusted, right? But, we, you know, in our era of climate change and global pandemics, we need those things to survive, right? And to me, when I say the abolition of the value form, what I mean is, you know, um, you know, moving beyond a world predicated on the infinite and endless accumulation of private wealth and moving towards a world predicated on, you know, meeting needs and uh, working towards the collective flourishing of all, right? And, you know, for me, the, the, the idea of a commons is, is central to that, right? And this, this moves in many directions, right? Um, you know, I think the state legislators I was talking to thought I was nuts when I moved the conversation in this direction. But for me, like, what do you do? You shut down the fusion center and you create, you know, universal broadband that's publicly owned, right? You create an informational commons or access, you know, a common informational infrastructure. Um, so that's, you know, that's how I'm seeing the issues. That's how I'm thinking about it. You know, that's what uh, abolition means to me. Thanks, Brendan. That is certainly the world I want to live in. And uh, I imagine uh, it, it's a convincing world for, for many of our listeners as well. Thank you for articulating that so clearly. Um, that, that concludes our interview. I'm deeply grateful to you, Brendan, for talking to us um, so uh, cogently and, um, and beautifully about both your book, the work that you did in New Jersey and New York, but also about the challenges facing us here in Maine and envisioning uh, what we want out of this or don't want out of the Fusion Center and what we would, would want as an alternative to, um, to mass supervision. And I invite listeners to pay attention to this argument because it will come up again next year in the legislature. I am quite sure we're gonna be fighting this battle again and look forward to that, to that struggle together. Thanks so much for having me and uh, giving me the opportunity to talk. Absolutely, Brendan, anytime. Next week on the Freedom and Captivity podcast, we're going to be talking about immigrant detention and deportation, specifically about the impact of ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, on immigrant Mainers. We'll be talking with Phil Mantis, the legal director of the Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project, Teresa and Sun Kim, who are going to be speaking about their personal experience with ICE, and with Kelly Merrill and Reverend Zeb Green from D-ICE, Maine, a Maine-based group fighting uh, the construction of an ICE facility in Scarborough, Maine. So please join us again next week. I'd like to thank the Portland Media Center for their support, Dino Raymond, the sound engineer for, uh, for this week's broadcast, and Samuel James, whose music opens and closes each episode. I can live without a name, but I...